Oh my gosh, you don't realize how loud a room is until you put a live microphone in that room. Hello and welcome to the Hacked Off podcast. We've had a little bit of a break here. We have been really, really busy, but we're back now. So let's not dwell on the break. Let's talk about today's topic. Well, recently I did a talk for Trusted Tech Talks titled Encryption Isn't Magic and Hackers Can Break It. So I figured I'd share with with you some of the content, what I was talking about uh, in that in that presentation, I'll give you the nice condensed cut down version of it. But in short, what I was talking about is um, a lot of people consider encryption as like a like a closed box, like a black box where it just encryption is just handled and encryption is on or off and, and that's it. And that at the at the beginning of my career is how I thought of encryption It's like encrypted, not encrypted. Those are the options, right? And anyone who's been working in security for any length of time knows, of course, it's a lot more complicated than that, and there's a lot more options. So talking a little bit about encryption is, uh, it's worthwhile, it's worthwhile getting getting some background understanding into um, how encryption can help, where common configurations are maybe um, insecure, or maybe some of the options we should be looking at uh, turning on are, are not turned on by default. But the problem is with encryption, um, it gets really complicated really quickly. And my background isn't mathematics. I have a master's degree in information security, not mathematics. I'm not a crypt analyst, but I figured um, I'd talk a little bit about what I've been working on recently and um, how that can kind of give you a nudge if you haven't looked at your cryptographic configuration to start reviewing a few of the options. So where this story came from was I was working with a a really, really big organization who handle um, payments by payment card. And a part of that assessment, I was able to uh, extract, or steal, if you prefer, a, a large number of payment cards because the, the cryptography that protected them wasn't right. So highlighting this idea that it isn't just encrypted or not encrypted, but there's options and you can mess things up. So when I was looking at doing a talk about cryptography and, and pointing out some of the nuances and some of the things to check out and some of the funny, interesting facts, uh, I couldn't, of course, start with the story of specifically how I stole those payment cards because non-disclosure agreements are the bane of my life. But uh, I figured I'd, I'd look a little bit about, you know, um, what's available online, what kind of information can we can we draw out to show that, um, you know, common cryptographic uh, configurations aren't aren't so great. And what I stumbled on was uh, trying to look at. Um, cryptography from a is it good or is it bad point of view, but a bit more broader than just on or off. And this leads uh, certain websites, it leads certain applications to, to grade cryptographic uh, configurations. So you might look at something like um, your website's transport layer security configuration. That's the S of HTTPS these days. And you might try and look at, you know, is it good or is it bad? Do we have insecure ciphers enabled? Do we have insecure cipher modes enabled? And, and how do we communicate that in a way to, you know, people like business leaders, but also just less technical members of staff where um, some of the nuance, you know, talking about why um, cipher block chaining might be a poor choice of cipher mode when there's other options available. And this leads um, some websites and, and some organizations to come up with like a traffic light system or what one that I saw frequently was like a, like a, almost like a grading, like you would get at school where it's like A, B, C, F. 
and uh, depending on, on, on the options. And whilst that addresses the problem of it's on or off, does it have the, the detail required? So I started exploring these things and I figured there's a, a few things to point out that just worth looking at if you're interested in making sure that your data when stored and transmitted is secure. The, the first thing in one of the first slides that I had in my presentation for the Trusted Tech Talks was cryptography lasts a long time. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing, you know, proven algorithms that have been reviewed by many people to many degrees could be a good thing. So old cryptography actually can be a benefit if old in that context means well-reviewed. Um, but cryptography hangs around for a long time. Good example of that is if you look at how long has Transport Layer Security version 1 been around? Um, well, the RFC that I've got in front of me here, 2246, says that, well, well, this RFC was published in 1999. So when was Transport Layer Security version 1 removed from common web browsers and, and common systems that we come across? Um, it hasn't been, really. When I originally wrote this slide deck that I'm now reading my speaker notes from to you, uh, I, I put a little joke in there about how, like, oh, it hasn't been removed. It's been around forever. You know, it, we're, we're 10 years in and it's still here. Gosh, no, 1999. My gosh, 20 years. Uh, I suddenly feel old. I hope all of you do too. Um, yeah, cryptography lasts a long time, a couple of decades there. Anyway, the point that I was trying to get to was uh, it's not been removed from modern browsers, but there's a lot of discussion around, certainly TLS 1.0 and 1.1 of it probably should be removed and, and when can we remove it? So there's some documentation online that might say it's been removed from browsers like Chrome or it might say something like uh, it's planned to be removed in Q1 of 2020 and it being the end of July. That might be confusing. It's like, does that mean it has been removed or it was planned? What happened? Well, I've got a, a document in front of me, specifically this one's about Chrome, but most of the major browsers have got uh, some notation in them about removing TLS 1 and 1.1. Uh, and this says, this removal has been delayed until Chrome 84. Okay, so Chrome 84 is out. I presume you're not very up to date on your Chrome versions, unless you're a particularly niche kind of nerd. But um, Chrome 84 came out, what, uh, last Tuesday, so a week and a half ago as I record this. And uh, it wasn't removed. Uh, they've actually, when you try to connect to a website that's only protected by, you know, old versions of transport layer security, uh, you get an interstitial warning. That's one of those warnings that pops up as you try and connect to the website. And it says, you know, your connection is not fully secure. Error, SSL obsolete version. How much do these warnings help? Well, you can click through them. You advance and then proceed and it'll take you to the website. And... No, your connection is not fully secured. Doesn't sound that bad. There is some subtext that says this site uses an out of date. Uh, uh, this site uses an outdated security configuration, which may expose your information. For example, passwords, messages, or credit cards when it is sent to this site. Yeah, well, that that's accurate. But how do users respond to this kind of thing? I guess it depends on your security awareness training. But you get the point. Uh, Cryptography lasts a long time. In this case, a couple of decades. It's not still, it's not completely removed. And also it starts to bring up this idea that not fully secure. Well, it doesn't mean insecure. It doesn't mean broken. So we also have some kind of spectrum for how do we grade cryptographic weaknesses from an academic weakness that might allow a um, slight increase in brute force speed or conversely, a slight decrease in key space. Um, right down to being 
broken, where you might say um, a threat actor with a publicly available hacking tool can decrypt the data within a small time frame, like an hour or something like that. You know, you, you, you can see that I'm trying to draw a spectrum here from, well, it's not as good as we thought it was right down to it's fundamentally broken. It, it's hard to grade those things. So I started looking at some websites with some common, you know, SSL and TLS checking tools to see um, what grades do common websites have. Some of these websites, in fact, publish these uh, grades, you see. There's programs out there like SSL Labs that will grade a site and there's almost like a, not quite a leaderboard, but like a recent scans list where you have the good and the bad. Um, so you can see some of them on there. And I was checking out some .gov.uk sites and um, some of them have got Bs. Is that good? Is that bad? Um, then you check a lot of these sites and you get A pluses, A's, A minuses, B's, some C's. And you start thinking again, well, whilst this is more granular than is it on or off, what is it actually telling us? You know, if you have a website that's graded as B because it has TLS 1.0 in there, what does that actually mean? So I started looking at... Um, some common breaks, some known weaknesses, things like the RC4 No More attack. Um, so rc4nomore.com website that has some published vulnerability data on there about weaknesses uh, and in fact practical attacks in, in RC4, well worth looking at. Ironically, when you connect that website, it'll tell you it's not secure because it's plain text HTTP. But um, this is talking about uh, a new, at the time, um, attack in RC4, and then also references an older attack from 2013, where previously RC4 could be broken in something like 2,000 hours. The new attack for transport layer security allows a break within 52 hours. Um, for WPA TKIP, so WPA1 if you prefer, uh, was broken in one hour. So I tried to, for the sake of this presentation, look at something that I could demonstrate to get the point across that Sometimes cryptography is broken and what broken means can sometimes be literally put down to um, a time frame. And what I actually came across was a, a common internet service provider that, that gives out, you know, little wireless access points that are configured with a default key. And that default key is, as initially looks, not bad. So, um, you know, it's, it's really common for internet service providers to give wireless network uh, access points out and those access points to be configured with, you know, some kind of default password. I think a lot of them, you know, they're, they're unique per unit, they're fairly long, fairly random, and on the, on the face of things, might not look, look so bad. But um, some of them have restricted key space, so maybe the default password is 10 characters, but they're not using uppers, lowers, symbols, numbers, they're maybe just using um, hex for example, so some letters and numbers. Uh, maybe they're just using uppers. Uh, this one here, for example, um, eight characters, uppercase and numbers only. So given that, given that as a target, how quickly could we break those things? Well, I mentioned earlier WPA TKIP, uh, RC4 no more attack, breaking WPA1 in one hour. But, you know, it kind of depends on, are you using WPA2? What's the configuration setup? Those kinds of things. But keeping things simple. Just taking that key space, eight characters, uppercase, numbers only. How quickly could we break that? Uh, and this brings in this idea that I think 
most people that I talk to, certainly most of our customers are aware that you can you can crack password hashes. You could capture the password hash for wireless network when the ePoll handshake takes place and then you could crack that offline. And you know, people joke about, oh, you've got, you know, a gaming rig at home or you've got, you know, some machine with a with a load of GPUs in it that can crack hashes. And that's true and, and interesting and it's cool to look at the availability of, of some of this hardware. You know, look at something like the the Tesla V one hundred uh, GPU, really powerful example of uh, a, a graphics unit that you can do password cracking on. Um, if you Google them, I, I you know, had a, a quick internet search to to find the price of them. I found them on uh, one website for £7,500. Pretty costly, but you can get a machine with like, you know, eight of these in it or something like that and get a really, really fast cracking speed. So I wanted to take this fact that we have a price for a graphics card. The graphics card has an associated amount of passwords that it can try in a certain time. And then we have a fixed key space. So this example wireless network that's from a major internet service provider that we're trying to look at, like how quickly could you crack this thing? And that leads us to being able to say how long that attack would take. But you could also say how costly that would be if you're associating it with an example set of hardware. I just thought this is interesting. What else am I going to do with my afternoons, right? Then try and buy a load of graphics cards and crack some passwords for my neighbor's wireless networks. I mean, people's wireless networks, customers, customers' wireless networks. So what are the figures? How does this work out? Well, this is the big thing you see. When I talk to people about getting a load of graphics cards, they think you would have to go on the internet and, you know, buy eight of these graphics cards at seven and a half thousand pounds each, which would be a huge figure. And you don't, of course, because cloud computing exists. So if you want eight Tesla V100s, just go to your favorite cloud provider and they'll they'll lend you them by the hour, effectively. So you can check out, you know, Azure has them, one example machine here, eight times V100s with NVLink, 16 pounds an hour. I checked uh, Amazon as an example price, uh, $24 an hour. It depends on the specific setup that you want in the region and those kinds of things. But something like 20 pounds an hour, um, for eight Tesla V100s. And how quickly can these things crack passwords? Well, uh, I, I pulled up some numbers. I actually ran this. Uh, and the wonderful thing is, if you're trying this at home, which I recommend because it's good fun and it's good to to tie a physical like amount of time and a physical price to breaking passwords or breaking uh, certain encryption protocols, certain hashing algorithms, that kind of thing. Because um, it's really interesting from the, the taking that academic attack and making it like a practical real world attack. So I'll share some figures with you in a second. Of course, it varies depending on the, the hash type. But if you take that example, that particular wireless network that I pointed out, and you say, uppercase, numbers only, and maximum eight characters, that's your key space, there would be, you know, uh, 2.8 trillion possible passwords. Um, American trillion, there's a difference here. Um, two followed by 12 zeros. So, so um, 2,800,000 000, million, however you would like to put that, but, um, you know, nearly three and 12 zeros. It's a big number. But this uh, this uh, machine that I borrowed from my favorite cloud provider, and I got eight of these Tesla V100s in it, how quickly can it do password hashes? How quickly can it do these, these uh, WPA2 uh, handshakes? Well, it does um, 6,500,000 password attempts a second. That's pretty quick. I mean, okay, um, 6 million is vastly smaller than um, 2.8 trillion, granted, but what does it actually work out at when you're comparing these two things where it's, um, you know, 
per second. So I ran the maths and I thought to do a full key space attack on one of these machines, if my maths works out, on the particular hardware that I'd borrowed, so 8v100s, but the actual specifics of the machine with RAMs and CPUs and things like that. RAMs? <laughs> it's memory and CPUs. Um, it's about 120 hours. It's just over 120 hours uh, to do a full key space attack. So to start at, you know, eight A's and then work your way up to, you know, nine, 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 nine. Um, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. 120 hours. That's not a long time at all. And if you had a specific organization that you're trying to break into, um, you know, some attackers might, some threat actors might try that. And what's the associated cost? Well, you know, if you do the kind of 16 pounds an hour for 120 hours, I, I ran the actual numbers, but it comes out at about uh, 1,925 pounds. So change from two grand. And that's also not that much. That's surprisingly low, especially when you start factoring in things like the threat landscape. You start factoring in things like, well, there's a lot of people working from home. And if you're working from one of these example wireless networks, and there's some variants out there, but you know, if you're working from one of these networks, could a threat actor compromise one of these wireless networks as part of a broader attack to target a, uh, a major organization, you know, to, to compromise that user's device and then get access to the VPN, those kinds of things. I do realize that the jump from, you know, cracking somebody's home Wi-Fi to gaining internal access to a corporation is a big jump. But you understand that this is just one step of that journey and actually surprisingly achievable, especially given that you don't have to do a full key space attack. You crack hashes until you find the right password, right? So if you're halfway through the key space, you're about halfway through the probability that you'd have found the right password. So yes, it varies, but it should be less than 120 hours. That's the, the point that I'm trying to make there. Um, so that's that's surprising. It's a surprisingly practical attack. Um, what other hashes have we got that we might com commonly come across? Or if we were trying to um, break into an organization, uh, kinds of attacks that we might use that would lead to us getting hashes. Um, we'll look at something like um, link local multicast name resolution spoofing, right? Common attacks like uh, using the tool responder to uh, capture hashes from the wire. So this could be, you know, step two. You break the wireless network as an example, and then you try and target the user's laptop and you use um, LLMNR to, to crack that. Well, those hashes are even faster from the hash crackers point of view. So instead of 6.5 million password attempts a second, it was 31 billion on this example machine that I got. So if you look at the, the key space of um, common passwords that your users might use, you know, it's gonna be a dictionary word, maybe they swap out a couple of letters, ats for as, fours for as, threes for es, that kind of thing. Those kind of permutations that we might call leet substitutions, or maybe they'll take a dictionary word and add a number suffix on the end, something like that. You're gonna get through those passwords really, really quickly in the likelihood, given one of these um, cloud uh, cracking machines of, of breaking that password is like really high. It's possibly more than you thought it was. There's even faster hashes that you might come across though, things like NTLM hashes. So you might pull an NTLM hash uh, if you gain access to a laptop and you dump the uh, local administrator password, for example, or right at the end of a pen test engagement when you when you dump out the ntds.dit, that's the, the active directory where all of the password hashes are stored, you get NTLM hashes out of those places, but they come across on pen tests as well. The, the reason that I'm mentioning them, of course, common, and also they're even faster, 678 billion password attempts a second. So how did how did those numbers factor in? How do those hashes factor in? Well, if you think of 
all of the possible passwords that you might get by using a dictionary word with a common suffix, or a dictionary word with leap substitutions, or you know, let me in with a three and an exclamation on the end, that kind of thing. You're probably gonna get through all of those permutations in one second, or if not, certainly a small number of seconds. Some organizations are looking at doing things like uh, taking three dictionary words, so um, sacrificial pestilence disturbance, and, and, and that becomes your uh, password, you know, three random dictionary words. So again, we can plug these numbers in and uh, taking it to, to the extremes for both cases, if you're doing three random words that are all lowercase, so a really long password with low complexities, just three dictionary words, uh, how many dictionary words are there? Well, a quick internet search, Oxford English Dictionary tells me there's 170,000 of them in common use and, and uh, another large number that are kind of archaic or deprecated, if words are deprecated, I guess archaic. Um, so 170,000, we're using three of them, so 170,000 to the power three, gives you a really, really big number. And uh, if you take that really, really big number and you divide it by the number of password attempts a second we can do with NTLM hashes, which like I said, 678 billion, how long would it take to get through, say, the full key space for those three lowercase words, uh, passwords? Um, 7,429 seconds, about two hours. So again, possibly a lot faster than you thought. Now we're taking this to the, to the furthest example. You know, I'm using NTLM hashes as this example because they are the fastest to crack. If this was a, you know, uh, net NTLM version two hash, something that we would get from responder that LLM and R attack, you know, it would be slower. The, the difference, as I mentioned, NTLM 678 billion on the hardware that I tried this on, whereas net NTLM version two was 31 billion. So it's, you know, some, some degree slower, but you, you see the point that I'm trying to make here is that password cracking surprisingly well these days, and it isn't devoted to you know, threat actors that are going to spend thousands and thousands and thousands on hardware, you know, they're going to buy eight of these seven and a half thousand pound graphics cards because cloud computing works for the bad guys as well as it works for the good guys. So we can, we can rent them. Maybe this is something to factor in on pen test engagements. Maybe this is just something to factor in when you're doing threat modeling and looking at things like what protection do passwords um, create. This is not groundbreaking, of course, because anyone could look at this conversation that we're having here and say, well, you just implement multi-factor authentication and then pass the problem of passwords go away, goes away. And I would concede that point. Multi-factor authentication is great and you should all use it. But I think a lot of people will know within their networks, there's a lot of systems that aren't protected by MFA. And so there's a lot of systems that these kinds of breaks um, might, might be relevant for. Interestingly, whilst I was doing this and I was running these numbers to get these slides to do this uh, podcast and the presentation I mentioned, I, I also looked at password strength meters because I was curious as to whether password strength meters factor in uh, password cracking using word lists or whether they factor in how fast those uh, those graphics cards are and the fact that it's so accessible to, to threat actors. So I tried five or six of them. The first one I've got here, I typed password one with a capital um, P. I tried password one, two, three with a capital P to see how long it would tell me that it would take a threat actor to crack that password. Uh, password one, two, three on this particular example, which was high on the uh, internet search list for password strength meter, 96 millennia for a threat actor to guess, to guess password one, two, three. 
I'm not convinced by that, but there was a lot of these password strength meters that had similar results. Another one here, password 23 with the capital P, uh, it will take approximately 200 years for a threat actor to guess that password. Another one didn't give me a time frame, but just said strong. Uh, uh, the This one uh, says strong, but also the website is insecure. So the browser is warning me about a HTTPS weakness on this site. Uh, one of them did, of course, tell me that this password is weak. Hate to break it to you, but that's a pretty weak password and you shouldn't use it. But the message that they tell me the password is weak has got poor output encoding on it. So, you know what? Computers are hard and um, vulnerability management is, is hard. But that was just something that I wanted to share to say that um, encryption isn't an on or off and encryption isn't a, uh, a definite. It's not just you turn encryption on and that's it. You know, you don't have to um, just... Yeah. There's more to it. That's the point of this podcast. There's more to it. So I'll give you some things to check out. But in the first instance, password cracking possibly works a lot faster than you thought it would. Those three password passwords, uh, three word passwords, um, you can break them pretty quickly if you know that the user is using one of those passwords in that format, if you have that heads up. And if you have some graphics cards that you borrow from a cloud provider. If you're using dictionary word passwords, you know, um, elephant123, welcome2020, or one that I've had great luck with recently, lockdown2020, um, they're gonna be broken incredibly quickly. You should know that already, but possibly it's it's much faster than, than you thought it was, and it's not gonna be, you know, a threat actor spending hours and hours and hours running it through a massive GPU box. Uh, they're gonna spend seconds to crack those passwords on the presumption that they can get a hash through a common attack, such as the responder attack that I mentioned, the LLM and our thing. And what else do we have to worry about? Well, I mentioned transport layer security right at the very beginning when I was talking about how encryption lasts forever. And so I guess I'll throw some some uh, recommendations out there as well. Um, take a look at uh, your certificates, your, your um, TLS or X509 certificates and, and how they're uh, working. What is your key length? Um, are you relying on revocation lists? Are you using wildcard certificates? Have you implemented certificate authority authorization? Those kinds of things. So I guess certificates, check out certificate authority authorization if you aren't already using it. Wildcard certificates have some weaknesses. If it's easy to not use them or if it's easy to overcome those weaknesses in another way, like unique keys, you should look at doing that. And um, certificate lifecycle consider reducing the lifetime of your X509 certificates. Don't have them valid for 20 years, but maybe look towards 90 days or less. Protocols, I mentioned TLS version 1.0, the browsers are trying to remove it and are making moves in that direction. So you should remove it from your servers as well. In fact, remove all SSL, secure socket layers, and remove all uh, transport layer security 1 and 1.1 and instead use 1.2 and possibly even 1.3. Weak, broken, deprecated ciphers. Remove null ciphers, anonymous ciphers, DES, 3DES, RC4, those kinds of things. Just use good ciphers. And another thing that I don't see people talking about a lot is um, key exchange algorithms. So look at what key exchange algorithms your servers are supporting and move towards ones that have forward secrecy or ideally perfect forward secrecy with ephemeral keys. So check those things out as well. But the lesson here is cryptography is not on or off. There are a lot of nuances and there's a lot of attacks. And when it comes to the computational power to break cryptography, threat actors might have more of it than you think they do because you know what? The cloud is awesome and it allows you to 
download a faster computer if, if yours isn't up to the job and that can impact your threat modeling and it can impact um, the security of your organization. So you should check these things out. And thanks for listening. Thank you.